The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And I am delighted today to welcome a fellow registered dietitian and colleague. She is Nutritionist Emeritus of the Department of Nutritional Sciences and founding co-director of the Center for Weight and Health at the University of California in Berkeley. She is a nationally recognized expert on pediatric obesity and the dietary practices of ethnic and immigrant populations. She uniquely takes a health at every size approach to weight management, and that's really what I want to talk about today is we've got a new film out called Fed Up, all about childhood obesity. We've been talking about childhood obesity for decades, certainly as long as I've been a dietitian. And so we have to look at some alternative approaches to weight management and also look at what you say, Joanne, is how are we going to empower community coalitions to change local environments that they are supportive of healthy lifestyles and families. And I should say here that Joanne Iketa is dedicated to protecting children from becoming casualties in the war on obesity by promoting this health at every size approach. So, Joanne, welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Well, Joanne, I want to ask you something. You know, we become dietitians, and then our lives and our careers take various paths. How did you get down this path of looking at childhood obesity and this health at every size approach? Well, I'm almost embarrassed to say that I started out actually designing weight loss programs for adolescents, teenagers. And by the time I was through with that, I felt that I had done more harm than good and I believe there had to be a better way. I was essentially reinforcing body dissatisfaction among these kids, and not only that, I think I impacted their self-esteem, and not in a positive way. They somehow thought I might have a magic wand that I could wave over them and they would become slender and more acceptable to their peers. And I didn't have a magic wand, and I'm still ashamed to this day that I did that sort of thing, and I've really worked hard to make up for it. Mm. You know, I think we've all been in that boat, and I remember even myself, when I first started clinical practice, you know, the doctor would write the diet order. Now, dietitians can write the diet order, but I remember giving out one too many 1,200-calorie diets myself, so... You are not alone. We are together, and we are moving forward to create a a saner way of looking at weight and food and health. Well, one of the things that we talked about, we spoke earlier about how are we going to approach this subject, and one of the things you said to me that really spoke to my heart was, I would be happy to talk about the greater societal issues working against our children and a healthy weight. So let's talk a little bit about that. What are the societal issues that you see working against our kids? Well, I think one of the most obvious ones, when schools started to sign contracts with beverage companies, with food companies that actually offered poor products in terms of nutritional needs, and the schools signed these contracts to promote soft drink consumption, to promote fast food consumption, because they were hard up for money. 
And I think communities need to realize that schools shouldn't be in the situation where they have to literally promote junk food to kids in order to have an adequate budget. So that really bothered me right from the beginning when I saw it starting and saw it expand. Mm-hmm. Have you been successful or have you seen communities that have been successful in getting these contracts out? I know that once you sign on the dotted line, it becomes impossible or nearly impossible to change some of these relationships or they'll still have the, say, the Coke or Pepsi or Dr. Pepper machines, but they'll, you know, it's sort of like a serving as an ad and then they might have, say, bottled water or juice in them or maybe diet sodas as opposed to the sugar-sweetened ones. But I still am not comfortable with that presence there. And I wonder, what have you seen in your career? Well, fortunately, Californians are pretty health-conscious. So I think we took hold early in banning things like soft drink sales and contracts and banning fast food outlets from being the the people who serve our children lunches in school settings. And I'm very happy for that. But the one thing we haven't been as good at is finding funding to get quality physical education back in the schools. That really needs to be done because kids need to be physically active. They will do better on test scores. They'll perform better on different tasks if they are, in fact, physically fit. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, one of the things that bothers me is that the message from the food industry, say these soft drink companies, is the soft drink isn't the problem, it's the physical activity. But when you look at how many calories are in some of these junk foods, you realize that some of these kids are going to have to be walking or doing the equivalent of energy output for a couple of hours, which isn't going to happen in a routine day. It's unrealistic. Mm -hmm. Well, I know that you've been working to raise awareness about this. What other social issues do you see out there as truly contributing to this weight gain that children experience? Well, I think one of the things we found with research is that dieting in children or teens actually appears to lend to weight gain. So if a child is before puberty starts to diet, there's a risk of stunting growth in height. So we worry, even if the child's overweight, uh, there is that risk of stunting growth in height with a calorie-restricted diet. During adolescence, we found that teenagers who diet tend to be more at risk of becoming overweight and obese and kids who don't diet, and that's kind of startling. We think the reason for that is that teenagers put themselves in this feast and famine situation. Uh, They diet, 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 restrict their calories, restrict their calories, and that's the famine part of it. And then all of a sudden, they just are so hungry that they start to feast and oftentimes binge and overconsume. And this becomes a vicious cycle. And unfortunately, the sea side of it tends to outweigh the famine side of it and, and in fact, puts these kids at risk of becoming even more overweight. Mm -hmm. In fact, that's true in adults also. We see this weight cycling 
Joss leads to further weight gain. It doesn't actually lead to any kind of permanent weight loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that. I, I want our listeners to make sure that they heard that really clearly, that dieting backfires. And I think that, you know, even when we look at, as you mentioned, kids as well as adults, there's something about that restrictive mindset that backfires. And I'm sure physiologically it sets us up for being more conservative with our calories, too. I think research sustains everything you've said. Unfortunately, this message has not gotten to the public. Most people think that when you're overweight or obese, the first thing you do is go on a diet. And, of course, we see a lot of publicity over, oh, which diet works best? In fact, none of them work best. All of them lead to this additional weight gain, and that's very concerning. Mm -hmm. The new movie that's just out is called Fed Up, and the focus of that movie is very much on well, it's, it's on junk food generally, but it focuses keenly on sugar and this mm-hmm. extra sugar in our diet. In your experience, do you see one macronutrient as being more problematic than others? And do you think that foods that are high in sugar, fat, and salt carry an addictive property? I don't think one can be addicted to food. I do think some people overeat because it is emotionally, it diminishes emotional distress. Let's say you're a very depressed person and you're trying to feel better. Well, one way to feel better that gives you immediate gratification is to eat. And so, in fact, you will find some very large people who can't stop eating because they depend on it to help them keep sane and and have some reason to live sort of thing. I don't think food is addictive. I don't think that sugar is the only factor. I think, as you pointed out, fat, salt, the three of those are problems. We have too much fat, too much sugar, and too much sodium in our food, and we need to try to take some steps to decrease it. Mm-hmm. You know, I was really interested in the work that you did with immigrant populations in California. What did mm-hmm. you learn? Yeah, I've learned so much from my, my clients and patients over the years, and I wonder, what did you learn from those populations? Well, I've asked myself that because I've learned so much over time. One of the things I found out was the strength of family to most of these populations Family is not mom, dad, and kids. It's much more extended than that. In a household, you're going to find mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, and another grandma, along with uncle and a few other cousins. And I mean, it's amazing the composition of these households vary tremendously, but oftentimes they work together to be able to afford the rent on a place, to be able to co-jointly buy a car and then share it, you know, decide who gets to use it at which times and which days, who needs it the most kind of thing. I've just been really heartwarmed watching these families help each other and care so much about each other. And in the United States, I think mainstream population people move around so much that oftentimes they don't live near their parents. They don't 
see grandma and grandpa, aunts and uncles are halfway across the country. And I think that really makes it hard on parents because they don't have the kind of support that an extended family brings to them. Mm-hmm. The other thing I have to mention is when I worked with Native Americans, Indians in California, by the way, it was very interesting to me. They preferred the word Indian. They did not want to be called Native Americans. Mm-hmm. And so when I published my research about them, I used both terms because I wanted to make it clear that I did know Native American was the acceptable term, but I wanted to also honor the name that, that the people wanted to call themselves. Mm-hmm. So from Native Americans, I really learned about living in concert with the environment. They are so in tune to the natural environment and keeping the environment, sustaining the environment, not harming it, not spoiling it in any way. And I think if anybody thinks about conservation or ecology or any of those things, they were way ahead of us, and I think they still are. Mm-hmm. Well, I just need to take one quick break to remind our listeners that we are listening to Food Sleuth Radio, and my guest is Joanne Aketa. She is a fellow registered dietitian and nutritionist emeritus at the Department of Nutritional Sciences at the University of California, Berkeley. She is internationally known for her work in childhood obesity and a concept called Health at Every Size. Before we move on, Joanne, to the Health at Every Size concept, I want to go back to the Native American population mm-hmm. and their embracement of the environment. Did you find that that relationship with the environment was a way that you could help promote less processed foods because of the toll that they take on the environment? Yes. I th- in that population, they're not really interested in eating a lot of processed food. In fact, in some areas of the state, they're still hunting, fishing, gathering, so that a lot of their diet is sustained with foods that they have gleaned from the natural environment. And I certainly think we want to reinforce that. And I think we can do that. Mm-hmm. I was watching a film about natural gas extraction up in Canada, And what struck me so much, I believe the name of that film was Black Gold, White Water. And there was a a natural gas company going into this region and essentially polluting the water to the point where the Native Americans had a, a community gathering and they questioned the representative from the gas industry and they said, do you mean that we can't fish anymore? And so you're, you know, you're sharing with me the value that Native Americans place on the hunting and the fishing and the natural, the foraging that they do for berries and nuts, etc. The fact that what we are doing in the more industrial world might compromise that food system, it troubles me a lot. Yes, I agree. And it bothers me that we people are not going to be able to do that in the future uh, because we are polluting our environment to the point where you wonder how much longer this planet can sustain the kind of population uh, that we've burdened it with. I remember way back in the 50s and the 60s, probably more in the 60s, where a whole bunch of books came out about 
the growing population boon around the world and how, you know, just how much population growth could the planet sustain. And I, I think we're all worried that we're getting there too fast, too soon. Yeah. And in looking at some of these chemicals that, you know, we're exposed to, and that's not to say, I don't mean to say that, that certainly the food that we consume and the exercise that we have in our lives is not important. It is important. But I think many times we, we don't give credit enough to some of the compounds, the t- environmental toxins that further contribute to our nation's weight problems. You know, some of the issues like the, the BPA and plastics, for example, I try to stay up on that literature. And when we put it all together, we look at the overweight child and too often I think we blame the victim rather yeah. than, you know, looking at this larger society and thinking how can we improve the environment to help our children grow well. Well, one of the things I'm amazed that we haven't investigated as a factor contributing to childhood overweight is the use of prescribed drugs. Because so many children are on drugs that have been prescribed by a physician, and I think many of those drugs stimulate appetite, change metabolism, yet there's almost no research done. In fact, I can't find any research on these uh, drugs and how they impact the weight of children and even adults. I certainly know there's more research adults. I was on prednisone for a while for asthma, and my weight shot up 20 pounds. And when I went off the drug, I managed to lose the 20 pounds, fortunately. However, when I had to go back on it again, I regained the 20 pounds. And when I went off it, I only lost 10 pounds. So you can see how your weight can ratchet up fairly easily Mm -hmm. with pharmaceuticals, you know, things the doctor said are going to help you. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. I remember doing some work with a mental health community, and that was one of the big issues was that they recognized that many of the drugs that they were taking to help them deal with their mental illness, that those particular drugs were indeed associated with weight gain. And then you have this trade-off where you've got weight gain and all of the associated illnesses that go with that, the diabetes, for Mm -hmm. example, or the high blood pressure, but you've also got the mental illness that we have to treat. So I don't know. These individuals are in a real catch-22. Yes, absolutely. It's just like myself and the prednisone. You know, mm-hmm. what am I going to do? Uh, do I want to breathe? Yes. Do I want to gain weight? No, but that is a, a side effect of being able to breathe. Right. So you really are between a rock and a hard place in these situations. Well, let's talk a little bit about health at every size, because I know that you have done so much work. You've really been a leader in this area. What does that really mean? Well, it means that you take the focus off of weight and you put it on health, measures of health. I try to remind my students that health is not just physical health. Because I think many registered dietitians have been trained to evaluate people's physical well-being. They can take blood pressure. They can look at uh, lab values for serum lipids and A1C and, and this sort of thing. But when it comes to emotional health, that is mental health, 
many of them are, are not prepared to consider that. And you can't improve one aspect of health without affecting other aspects. For example, this whole emphasis on weight loss and losing weight and becoming an ideal weight has really promoted body dissatisfaction among children and adults. And that really has to do with mental emotional health. You know, kids are worried. Are my peers going to find me acceptable if I get bigger? Are, am I going to have friends? Uh, will I suddenly become a pariah in my classroom because I'm fat? It's amazing. A lot of children are very worried about this. And I've even had uh, patients. I, I do some counseling at a free clinic in downtown Oakland. And I even have patients who come to me and say, you know, I've got to lose weight. My daughter's embarrassed to have me come to school. Mm. And here I am telling her, you know, beauty is not just exterior beauty. It comes from within. Let's look. Are you healthy? What's your blood pressure like? What's your serum lipid levels like? Are you socially healthy? Do you have friends? Are you able to uh, establish positive relationships with people? Do you have a sense of humor? So that has to do with social health. And then, of course, there's this emotional, psychological component. And making people feel badly about their weight does not help that area of health at all. Mm-hmm. But health at every size is positive. It, it takes an upbeat approach. It says nourish yourself, listen to your body's cues and signals, eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full, don't have a lot of no, can't eat that foods in your life because then you'll just be thinking and wanting those all the time. You know, allow yourself to incorporate some foods of poor nutrient density into your diet, it's okay. Mm -hmm. In fact, I tell people, you know, if if you have one junk food a day and everything else is nutrient dense, then don't worry about it. We don't expect perfection. So health at every size really is empowering. It says you are valuable. You are a worthwhile person. We want to help you be healthy. And you can do that by eating well and by being being physically active, and throw away that scale because people will do drastic things to lose weight, like take up cigarette smoking or stick their finger down their throat so they vomit, and that certainly doesn't lead to good health. Mm -hmm. I was wondering how you felt about schools that weigh children. There's such a concern about childhood obesity that I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of backfiring with our well-meaning or well-intended approaches, but tell me what what your thoughts are about having children weighed at school. Well, the research that looks at how parents react to this is alarming. Basically, the first action that most parents take is to put their child on a calorie-restricted diet. And we've already said that that's a no-no, that you could possibly, if the child hasn't entered puberty, you could stunt the child's growth in height. If the child has entered puberty, you may end up with a feast and famine cycle of binging and purging and whatever. And so, you know, we just need to be very careful. These letters say, you know, consult your pediatrician but that wasn't what parents did. 
Also, it's a lot of money spent on taking these measurements, and it could be spent in improving, you know, providing physical education instead of measuring and weighing. The other thing is it has to be done in a private setting where the information is not shared with anyone because I've seen gym teachers do this in gym class with all the kids lined up. She's taking the heights and the weights and calling them out to some other students who are writing them down. Well, how awful. Can you imagine being the largest person in the class? You're totally humiliated. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm concerned that it's not being done correctly where it is being done, that it's really a waste of resources that could be put to better use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I wish that those resources were spent on school gardens and cooking classes. I know that yeah. <laughs> you and I have both been in this profession for decades long, and we know how important it is for people to know how to cook and feed themselves. And mm-hmm. that in itself is a, a weight management strategy because you're not dependent on the industry to feed us. Well, I mm-hmm. want to ask you, do you want to refer our listeners to any particular websites to learn more about the Health at Every Size? Yes. The Association for Size, Diversity, and Health is a professional association. It's health professionals, uh, but the public is more than... Welcome to join in promoting a health at every size approach. And I think people would be very interested if they went to the ASDA website and saw the principles that we espouse. And again, it's the Association for Size Diversity and Weight. And ASDA is our A-S-D-A-H is our short term that we use as an acronym. However, in order to get to the website, you actually need to put in association for size diversity and weight. Is it size diversity and weight or size diversity and health? Oh, you are so right. Okay. It's size diversity and health. Thank uh, you. Association for size diversity. <laughs> well, I want to make sure, and I'll make sure to have that link with our with associated with this interview. But I think it's a really important tool, you know, a place for people to go for more information. And even if they're, if let's say their children are going to a school where this practice is taking place, to be able to arm parents with some information to bring to the school board or bring to the principal and say, you know. Let's do this in a way that is not humiliating children and that we're really moving towards true health with these kids. I think the, you know, the idea that we could be doing more harm than good, you know, under that umbrella of first do no harm, that is really brought home in this conversation. Joanne, we only have a minute left. Is there one piece of information that you would like our listeners to go away with? It's going to seem very trite, but I would say love your children. Don't say, I'll love you more if you were thinner. I think so many large children feel like they are not loved to the degree that they should be because they are fat. And I think that's a terrible thing for a child to feel that his or her parents or grandparents or cousins or sisters or brothers and never allow anyone to tease your child about his or her weight. 
I don't think those are trite recommendations at all. I think they are truly very important. And I want to thank you so much, Joanne Aketa, for being my guest, fellow registered dietitian, nutritionist emeritus of the Department of Nutritional Sciences, and founding co-director for the Center for Weight and Health at the University of California, Berkeley. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Joanne, thank you so much for being my guest. Oh, you're so welcome.